like how many fatalities are acceptable in a exponentially safer system versus what's our zero tolerance look like and is it realistic? Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show where we know big dreams don't come true automatically. You have to engineer them. On today's show, we explore how autonomous vehicles have left the imagination of Hollywood and entered the streets, at least in some cities. Our guest was a part of Google's Moonshot Waymo, and he helped launch the world's first automated robo-taxi truck system. And this makes him an ideal person to enlighten us on um, the autonomous future that we're all moving into. But before we get there, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the founder and CEO of Technica Communications and founder of the nonprofit Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. A big thank you goes out today to Martin Schneider, who is our latest Patreon member. Thank you, Marty, for supporting the show. You're going to get a t-shirt for one of us, and I hope you enjoy it. And if those of you out there also want a t-shirt for yourself, please click on the Patreon page in our show notes and become a member. In fact, today's interview on autonomous vehicles uh, was so jam-packed, a lot of great stuff didn't make it into the show. So if you want to hear that whole conversation, become a member, and we'll give you a shout out too, and a t-shirt. Um, and now a brief message from the Resource Labs Network. As far back as 1958, Earthlings have been waiting patiently for autonomous vehicle technology to be ready. That year, General Motors predicted autonomous vehicles would be the social norm by 1976. In 58, they produced this delightfully kitschy musical for the Motorama Auto Show. And you can watch it on YouTube. Well, we'll leave a link in the show notes. And they imagined that autonomous vehicles would be controlled through electric auto control strips in the center of the highway and be under the supervision of an operator in a tower. Now, I don't blame GM for getting a lot of things wrong about autonomous vehicles (laughs) because most futuristic predictions are wrong, frankly. I mean, we're still waiting for flying cars. But It's just one example of how long we've been waiting for AVs to be widely available. So flash forward to the 21st century and autonomous vehicles have steadily progressed. They're expected to have a market demand of over a billion dollars by 2030. And um, by then they're expected to have this level five technology, which is anywhere, anytime, basically. uh, autonomous operation. Um, But, you know, on the other side of this equation are concerns from regulators and average people that the technology isn't ready for scale. Um, I mean, (laughs) there's there's a lot of schadenfreude to be had when you're watching these videos of robo-taxis clogging the streets of San Francisco, and um, they're pretty funny. I'm not going to lie. Um, definitely a major inconvenience if you're actually trying to drive that street. But what has people really concerned is when these AVs are involved in collisions or fatalities, right? And that's completely understandable. We want this uh, technology to be safe and we want the companies behind the technologies to have a safety first culture. 
Um, and that kind of commitment uh, was what recently prompted GM's Cruise Autonomous Vehicle Unit to dismiss nine key executives and lay off 900 employees at the end of 2023. That's 25% of its workforce. And today's guest, Timothy Papandreou, said that that was a bold and necessary move to realign Cruz's AV program towards safety. Um, all of this came about because uh, Cruz has come under scrutiny after a hit-and-run incident on the streets of San Francisco. So a car was driven by a human, and that car hit a pedestrian um, and propelled the woman into the path of a nearby Cruz robotaxi. The, the autonomous vehicle decelerated immediately, like it's supposed to, but obviously it couldn't do it fast enough to stop it from hitting the pedestrian. This incident in particular demonstrates that, for me, that it's not just engineering or programming that can make the AV safer. There's also uh, social and policy aspects to consider as well. Uh, you know, things like the human element and user error. So that's why we wanted to talk to Timothy Papandreou today. He's an urban technologist and a practical futurist with a long tech company pedigree. He was in the leadership positions for Google X's Moonshot Factory. Um, he's also a key advisor there now. Uh, he was a part of Google's AV Moonshot Waymo in the beginning, like I mentioned before. Uh, he was also chief innovation officer for the city of San Francisco's transport department, where he led a variety of first-of-its-kind initiatives. Today, he's the founder and CEO of Emerging Transport Advisors, known as ETA. I love that. Um, and there he helps governments, startups, and corporations realize the promise of technology innovation like autonomous vehicles. If we can get autonomous vehicle technology to be able to be utilized worldwide, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a massive reduction in traffic collisions and fatalities because the technology you know, claims that it can be safer than a human driver. So we have 1.25 million deaths every year because of, of people making mistakes in cars and vans. Number two is the ability to utilize a technology that means that you don't have to drive. And what that means is that we can now basically have things drive us around, which means that we don't need to park it. And if we don't need to park it, because cars are only used about 5% of the time, the other 95% they're parked. If we can utilize this technology to move us around, we now free up all this land. It becomes a real estate bonanza. The biggest winners out of this may be the real estate corporations because they now can repurpose a lot of land that is tied to car parking or car uses that is not available right now because of the need for, for minimum parking requirements. And the third major area is that if we don't need to own cars, if we actually own vans or buses or trains, et cetera, if things can move us around at the, at the whim of our summoning, and if we can have things delivered to us, we should see a massive reduction in the number of cars on the streets and roads, which means that we'll reduce congestion, pollution, emissions, noise, waste, et cetera, et cetera. Hence why it's considered this trifecta of this holy grail. And it's kind of like one of those moonshots where it's like a, a global problem with a radical breakthrough technology that could revolutionize our way of life. Now that's the promise. 
And of course, that's a big promise. And I think a lot of us have been waiting for that over the, the years following these these companies. So where are we on the uh, the autonomous vehicle technology timeline? What have we achieved so far? Yeah, so the um, autonomous vehicle technology timeline is 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 developing pretty much exponentially. If you think of Moore's law, where things get twice as efficient every every two years, it's more or less been following that. It's just that it's a really, really hard problem to solve. And I think most people on the planet don't realize how hard this is. It has to basically function like us, which means that we are a biological form that's evolved over millions of years. Our eyes are literally positioned in a way that we can have depth perception that almost nothing else on the planet can do what we can do, right? We, can, we know as an adult when we can cross the street because we can see a vehicle coming, but as a child, we can't because our eyes haven't fully developed yet, nor has our front front brain cortex. So those are massive things that we need to basically sandwich into a supercomputer, but that's still not enough. So we have to have things like um, the ability to, what we call, we basically map out streets and and areas where we geofence certain locations so that the technology knows what it's basically in. And then it has to ask itself three basic questions. Where am I? So it needs to localize itself. Like where am I in relation to the world? Um, Number two, What's around me? So literally what's around me? Is it buildings? Is it streets? Is it trees? Is it cats? Is it cars? What is it, right? And the third one is a really hard question. Based on everything that's around me and using um, the latest and greatest versions of AI, what should I do next? And that's when it has to create that safe path of travel. Now, you and I using our eyes, ears, and our brain, using our senses, know when it's safe to go next. We know when to cross the street or know when to drive and turn left, etc., But this computer is basically picking up all of these cues from a myriad of sensors, whether it's radar, laser radar, which is LIDAR, whether it's, you know, uh, stereophonic cameras, whether it's computer vision from these different other devices that capture imagery or sensors like microphones, et cetera. All these things are basically giving it input saying, this is what you do next. And then if it can't actually answer that question, it has got built-in parameters to basically say your default is to slow down and pull over and stop and then rerun your diagnostics and ask the questions again and then see if you can go. That's what it's supposed to do. That's where it's at right now. So AV technology can move people, it can move things, and it can do things, right? On the passenger side, it's got the point now where you can actually pretty well pick up and drop off people and um, and make sure that the ride is complete, similar to what you'd get an experience in an Uber uh, uh, ride service. It's pick up and drop up is still a little tricky because when we have curbside pickup, if there's people there or cars, double park, et cetera, it has to navigate those things, whereas an Uber driver will figure out and usually push their way through. And because they're designed to follow the letter of the law, they can't do things like, you know, do a quick U-turn or or go over the double yellow lines unless it's a safety issue, right? So these are kind of the things that they're designed to do. Now, they're not all credit equal. Waymo can definitely do that. I used to work with Waymo, so know where they're at and what they can do. Cruise has had a situation now, as you see in the press, where they've had to shut down their system because they're reassessing everything to see does it actually follow the protocols that they thought it could, et cetera. Zooks is a little bit early on, and there's other companies that are still early on, and they're either moving people in like low-speed shuttles, et cetera, so they're different speed and complexity. Um, and then there's some other areas around um, delivery and logistics where there's large trucking companies doing long-haul trucking. There's last-mile delivery, delivering it to your door or to your doorstep, et cetera. And then there's the doing thing, which is 
you know, municipal services, garbage cleanup, parking surveillance control, street sweeping, um, agriculture, mining, construction. It, the list goes on and on and on. They're much further ahead, but they're not sexy and they're not in the news because it's background stuff. But because they're moving slowly, they're in a predictable environment and they're um, basically doing the repetitive task daily, their level of complexity is really low relative to moving um, goods, which the box doesn't care how it gets there as long as it gets there. So it's, it's a little bit easier than moving a person, but moving a person is the hardest. Okay, thank you for that overview because I, I know that we've got San Francisco, Austin, and Phoenix in the United States at least that are running, um, basically serving customers. A- AVs are deployed and, and they're doing pickup and drop off. And Las Vegas, and Las Vegas. And Las, and Las Vegas, thank you. How's that going so far in your assessment? Well, I think Waymo's definitely um, picking up and dropping off the most people. They're doing an average of 10,000 rides um, uh, on the service. And I think they're going to, you know, 3x, 4x that. Because once the system understands where it is and it starts understanding the world around it, it just basically starts scaling. And usually they'll create these defined maps and they'll block out certain areas, whether they are particularly intersections or specific locations where it's just a little tricky for the software to navigate right now. And so they basically lock out those neighborhoods. But once those intersections are basically resolved, now you open up whole new neighborhoods. Like in Phoenix, for example, they've 3X'd and 4X'd the service area. It's pretty much metropolitan now. And the most crucial part of it is that it picks up and drops off from the airport. You know, from a taxi perspective, they're the most lucrative rides for, for ride hailing. So, so that ability to show that it can do that and what Waymo can do that I haven't seen others do yet, it can interchange between streets and highways and freeways. So that means that it can use routes, you can utilize a freeway, you can actually figure out ways to get there quickly or as, as easy, it just has more optionality to get you around. Uh, and I think what's going to be interesting right now is that as we're seeing more and more cities being deployed, we're going to start to see more and more use cases being available. And it won't just be the typical uh, ride-hailing customer who honestly only uses ride-hailing about once or twice a month. That's the typical customer. The heavy-duty riders who use it once or twice a week are a very small subset, but there's this massive missing middle of families with kids um, that just don't use this sort of stuff. And and when we did the initial trials in Phoenix and we started deploying it in a specific area of the Phoenix suburbs, we had parents taking their kids, some of them as young as like 8 or 10, to band practice, um, soccer practice, X practice, Y practice, but both parents went in the van together with the three kids dropped them all off and they had like half an hour of just, you know, couples time together and then brought them out and picked them up again. And I kept on hearing this over and over again saying, you guys don't know what you've done here. You've basically given us 30 minutes of our life back. And it has nothing to do with transportation. It's like they've got 30 minutes of their quality of life back. And that's what we're going for. That's the goal, right? It's not to create the world's best super duper driving system or drivers. I mean, yes, all those things are great for safety, accessibility, affordability, whatever. But we're trying to give the most precious moments of people's life back. And that's what we should be doing in the mobility space because those moments are precious. And if we can connect those moments with them and make them a joyful experience, then it's going to be a whole game changer. We change the whole perception of being in a vehicle and getting around. And we've talked a lot about uh, the Uber and Lyft experience and taxis and, and you know, frankly, I think uh, some people are, are concerned about, you know, their jobs going away through autonomous uh, technologies and 
And then you had like Governor Newsom in California actually vetoed a bill that would ban self-driving trucks. So, so what's going on here with, with um, what we can expect in terms of uh, role shift or, or job changes uh, in the autonomous space? Yeah, I mean, I get this question a lot because I work a lot in the AI space, right? AI may not actually replace all the jobs in this space, but it may replace the tasks and the roles. And what that means is that for passenger delivery or for passenger services or for ride hailing, it may mean that some jobs get eliminated based on the um, territories that they serve. But it won't be able to go everywhere ubiquitously for a while. It's going to be at least a decade or more. Uh, before we, we see that kind of 50-city approach or 85% of the market approach. It's going to take at least a decade to for, if you can get close to that. So there is a period of transition that we have in front of us. The other thing that's going to be interesting is that on the delivery side, unless the parcel can be robotically given to in your hands, someone has to give it to you. So it may be that they don't drive the vehicle anymore, but they actually get to give you the parcels and get them in and out. And they do more of them. So It'll, we're going to see more of that where there'll be maybe less drivers, but more courier type roles where they're querying more value added um, um, objects and services. But that eventually will get automated as well. On the trucking side, they have an existential crisis. Trucking is basically caught between a rock and a hard place. There is a massive driver shortage worldwide, especially in the, um, the US. Absolutely, yeah. No one under 40 wants to do this job. It's a horrible job. You're away from your friends and family. You're driving for eight hours a day. You are, it's in isolated locations that are really unsafe. Like there's been a lot of issues with that. It's not good for your body. Oh my God, it's not good for your body, your health. Sitting down like this, you like lose like, you know, years of your life. So there's a lot of these issues like that, that, that autonomous vehicle technology will actually help, especially the trucking technology side. But we have another uh, storm ahead of us, which is exponential growth and demand of e-commerce. Even if we had all the truck drivers, we didn't have enough trucks to move everything around all the time. So it was a bit of a fool's errand to do this um, uh, protectionist type legislation. It had some merits for sure, but the way that it was rolled out was just really um, protectionist looking and sounding and just doesn't, very antithetical to the way that we do things, especially in California. Where it is going to get challenging is that we have other companies like Tesla, et cetera, that are selling personally owned vehicles. And they have what's called Advanced Driver Assisted Systems or ADAS. And they kind of blur the line between ADAS and self-driving technology, which is the computer is driving. And so if you have to basically um, operate the steering wheel, brakes or pedals or any of those sort of things, that is a level of autonomy that is not fully self-driving. Fully self-driving is the robot's in charge. You're just a passenger. Your main job is to make sure that you have air conditioning, music, Wi-Fi, and you're looking at your phone, right? That's what you're doing. But if you're driving, and if you're driving a partially automated vehicle, you have to be constantly having attention, and this is a challenge. And I think it's interesting to look at the UK. They just passed their um, autonomous vehicle technology law. Actually, the king basically had it in his proclamation. I thought that was really cool. It's a king who represents this 2,000-year-old tradition talking about AV technology. But anyway, um, they're saying that if a computer... If anything has to be done by a human, it's not fully self-driving technology. And I think they've made a very clear line like that. And I think that's, frankly, where things are going to go. Thank you for bringing up the UK. We've talked a lot about the US. What's happening in other parts of the world in terms of autonomous vehicle technology? So I'd say that the, the market leaders are the, uh, the US, China, um, and um, parts of, of Europe. 
Um, and the reason for that is it just depends on what we're looking at. For example, the US is probably like the leader in everything, passengers, goods, and um, support services and, and uh, doing things, right? China is really strong on the passenger side, as well as some of the agriculture and, and mining and construction. Um, they have some pilot cities where they're working on, and they have very similar setups as, as what we see in, in uh, the Bay Area and in Phoenix. Europe's very different. Europe is very cautious about this, and they're extremely heavy on the regulation side. They also have much more complex cities that, for most part, have got a lot of choice and options, and the AV technology would be additive rather than substituting trips and rides. So think of Paris, think of, of places like you know um, Seville or, or Athens or any of those amazing cities that are really walkable, amazing public transport, easy to bike around, um, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, etc. The AV technology would be peripheral. It'd be maybe for street sweeping or for garbage control, but maybe it's for some ride-hailing services out, out in the hinterlands or the suburbs, but in the core, it's kind of difficult and not really going to add that much value. In fact, it may cause some congestion, frankly. Thank you. And, and you know, I think there's so much anticipation for AVs, but also because people like, hey, of course, who likes a commute, right? Who wants to, you know, be stuck in traffic? Uh, but there's also some trepidation because I think people are, are rightly concerned about um, collisions that can happen. I mean, Uber's, an, an AV uh, from Uber, Uber killed an Arizona pedestrian in 2018. Now, it was many years ago, but it had a chilling effect on the industry. And, you know, it was even a test car with a safety driver in it, you know? So um, it was it was a really unfortunate moment. I know, I know, I know. How can we make sure that these vehicles are going to be safe for pe- people, especially pedestrians, when you're having to program them to to do all the right things and they can't anticipate an anomaly that may happen? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, um, the safety of this technology is evolving, right? It's, it's literally trying to basically emulate what we've done. But let's look at our human record. We are the horrible worst drivers in the world. Honestly, we, we're killing 1.25 million people a year, mostly because we're not paying attention, we're going too fast, but also because of just bad road design. And what makes sense for us is that will we allow AV technology on our roads to scale if it's just a little bit safer than us as a driver, as human drivers? Or does that have to be like radically safer? So for example, in the US, you know, people are killing 45,000 people on the roads every year. It's, just, it's, an, it's absolutely unacceptable, right? That's the equivalent of a 737 falling out of the sky every day in US airspace. If one or two of them fell out of the sky in a week, we shut down the whole airspace system. Oh my God, we shut, we shut down flights because some idiot put their dog up in the overhead cabin, the cabin compartment, right? So our <laughs> tolerance for safety and zero safety for aviation, we need to bring that into ground transportation as well. We need to follow a lot of the air, airplane aviation safety protocols of removing the harm, removing the ability to harm, removing the error, removing the situation. That's going to take some time. But there's a hard existential ethical question to be raised of if I was an AV technology company and I went to the government, the US government and said, I can guarantee I can cut your collision and your fatality rate in half, in half. So we go from 45,000 to 22,000 and we say, do you say, okay, knowing that the technology will kill t- about 10,000 people, because it's still half of what it is today. So that's something that we have to grapple with. It's like, how many fatalities are acceptable 
in a exponentially safer system versus what's our zero tolerance look like and is it realistic? Because currently our status quo is woefully beyond that, right? So there's that real tension right now, like what is the ethical, moral, and um, legal uh, response to this? And the answer is the jury's out. It's still tricky. We're not sure because uh, many people are saying, well, we need to test and deploy in the real world. Otherwise, we won't learn and become safer and safer and safer. So we're going to enter this, I call it the messy transition period, real, a messy decade of lots of AV vehicles on the road interacting with, with human drivers who are not paying attention. They're on Instagram, on their phone constantly, whatever they're doing, right? And so I think we're going to see more and more of this honestly around the world. The knee-jerk reactions that we're seeing right now will start to dissipate and we're going to start having these very thoughtful collaborative discussions like, okay, so what do we actually do? What are we as a society willing to, to put up with? Like, and we have it in every, every industry. We have food safety protocols. We have clothing protocols. We have furniture uh, safety protocols. We have appliance protocols. Like, we've accepted a certain amount of risk and a certain amount of, of harm will be caused, but that is all legal and i'm not a lawyer so i'll stop there (laughs) (laughs) well thank you thank you for answering as much as you could because we know that there isn't an answer right we're working through it and this is what this is what comes up when people think about autonomous vehicles and um the other thing that comes up that you mentioned uh at the at the top of our conversation was that you know we might not need parking lots anymore because these vehicles can just drive around and and pick people up um and uh, because they can always be in use and um, that I think I think that promise can be truly fulfilled if these AVs are electric or zero emission. But if we're just driving around ICE vehicles all the time, then we're not doing ourselves a service collectively for the future. So, you know, where are we? Where's the industry with this? Well, there's very few, if any, autonomous vehicle technology that is not electric. The beauty of having an all-electric vehicle is that it integrates so much better with the AI technology because what happens is that it becomes no longer a vehicle being propelled by a computer. It now becomes an integrated uh, computer on wheels. AV technology right now is being retrofitted to existing vehicles, so it's much heavier, right? It's adding a couple hundred pounds, which reduces um, battery performance, a whole bunch of different things. But when they're calibrated and optimized, when they're built from the ground up as the next generation vehicles will be, they'll be much lighter because they don't need as much of the, the extra added inputs. So we're going to see a lot of those things. Just generally, the industry is going to get cleaner, greener, and more uh, efficient overall. But the holy grail is we'll see a massive reduction in car ownership and a massive reduction in car, car uh, space being used, which again would free up probably a billion acres of urban land, which is pretty expensive, you know? So we're talking like there's two or 3 billion car parking spaces in the U S alone, even 10% of that. That's we're talking billions of dollars of real estate. It isn't even just that it's now a lot of real estate holding companies that have land. You'll see in a suburban environment, half of the land is car park and half of the land is the actual building itself. You now have given basically a license to double the the development potential in suburban environments that didn't exist before. So it could become a real estate bonanza if we do it right. Now, if cities are smart, they'll repurpose the street space and add more protected facilities for bicycling, more more facilities for walking, more street trees, all the cool stuff that we need to do to make our cities more livable. That in concert with a lot of the vacant parking lots that we have, we can turn them into affordable housing. So 
It's a win, 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 which is why you're seeing very disparate groups who normally hate each other all galvanize behind this technology because they can see the value for their own personal interest. Yeah, we're excited too. And, and also like you could have more park space. Yeah. Urban farming, gardening. And I think the public would largely be behind that. You know, we've been waiting patiently for AVs for almost, well, for most of the century, right? Um, and, uh, and you know, everybody, everybody wants their autonomous vehicle. People don't, I, I mean, there is fun, there are fun opportunities to be the driver, but I think ultimately we would all rather be passenger. So the next 10 years, what can we expect? So 10 years from now, what would you predict AE development, AV development looks like? We're gonna we're entering a period of transition. What that means is that we're gonna have right now we're basically at a hundred percent mode share of human driven vehicles, right, on the public roads for passengers specifically. That should go from ninety nine point nine 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 to about ninety percent by the end of the uh, by the, the the next by the next decade of transition that we're in. That doesn't sound like much, but 10% of all vehicles being driven by computers around the world is extraordinary. Now, what that means, it won't be uniform, right? So we're not going to have this uniform deployment around the world. We're going to have hotspots. Most of the southwest of the United States will be the hotspot for the longest time because of weather, geography, topography, et cetera, et cetera. The southwest of the U.S., everything from California to Texas will be the AV epicenter for the next decade. We'll see pockets in other parts of the country. And then we'll see other pockets around the world, China specifically, the UK, maybe some parts of continental Europe, but maybe Australia, maybe New Zealand. I say maybe because they've got a lot of, of, of regulatory issues. Plus, these markets are very far away. They're not as lucrative as the US is. What we'll start seeing is a demonstrable market share of ride hailing being done with AV technology. That's for sure. And when I mean demonstrable, I mean at least 10%, maybe 20% in some markets, optimistically 30% in some markets. I mean, one in three rides will be an AV vehicle. That's a pretty big, big change that we'll see in some of the um, AV markets. We'll also see an expansion of ride hailing as well. Right now, ride hailing is very narrow. It's a certain demographic that can afford to use this service. Once you take the driver cost equation out, and if you believe all the metrics of it, it becomes 80% cheaper to move people around. We can now go into markets that didn't that weren't viable before. So we have a huge increase in the number of people that were able to have access. Think of people in low-income areas, either they're um, discriminated by age, race, gender, et cetera, that can't get from place to A to B because the public transit's very poor or they can't afford a car. We're going to see a big change in our humanness with this technology. Ironically, AI is going to make us more human than the current system that we have because Unfortunately, society, when they see humans doing roles that they think are beneath them, we become desensitized to them and treat them as less than human. But when we interact with technology, it's very personal and customized. We tend to become more empathetic and more open. It's a weird thing that we do as humans, right? So we see that. So I think that the big winner will be more empathy, more growth, more human development. Um, we will see more technology deployed. We'll see the sky as well. We even talked about aerial drone delivery and, and drone technology. We'll see much more of that because that's actually easier to do, frankly. Um, there's a pickup point and dropper point, that's it. Um, and so we'll see more of that, more electric um, um, AV taxis that are vertical, um, more uh, electric uh, autonomous passenger planes that go between, like, say, 
San Francisco and Tahoe, more of those regional markets that don't make sense right now. And um, we're going to see more of those things. So unlocking a lot more economic potential and value um, over the next decade. And in the other industries, very rarely you're going to see a farmer operating a tractor, a miner operating a mining truck, or a person doing construction uh, with a construction truck. That's basically become all roboticized um, over the next decade. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Exciting times. It is. It is exciting times. I mean, and I think that... The, the key for this, all this to work out in the way that we want to is because in my experience of technology, nothing ever works out the way you planned, right? There's always extra stuff that comes on, on board. But we're also humbled. Like our Wi-Fi connection has been spotty right now. You know, our cell service is spotty. Our phone apps crash all the time. You know, these things are just destined to have problems and flaws because they're designed by humans and that's just how it is. Uh, we just need to make sure that they don't kill people, they don't harm people, they don't damage our world around us. And I think if we can get that part down, everything else is just upside. You know, it's going to be hugely invaluable and hugely important. I think that's why the big technology companies are so uh, focused on it. Even though it's so intractably difficult and it's hard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the upside is so huge, not just from a monetary perspective, but from a societal changing perspective. I think it's worth the hard effort and frankly, the, the billions of dollars that they're burning on it because we really do need to do this for a whole bunch of reasons that we've outlined. And I think that's what's exciting is that it's kind of like one of those human things to do for humanity, right? So it's it sounds ironic, but AI and AV technology is to make us more human to basically improve our humanity. Let that sink in for a bit. <laughs> Earthlings, thank you so much for sticking with us as Timothy and I explored how removing one human driver from the equation can change so much more than just the way cars are designed. And we didn't even get into the point of the interview where uh, we talked about how Timothy thinks non-road applications like um, mining or agriculture, aerial applications will actually find a commercial foothold faster than the passenger applications. So head over to our Patreon page and get the full download of Timothy's predictions. And, you know, I think he's right that there's going to be a real estate bonanza in cities that are adopting this technology. The question is, will the newly available land be uh, redeveloped for public use or for private use? And I think it's really going to depend on what city that um, that's happening in, because I can see how in San Francisco, you might get a little bit of both, depending on the location of the property and also how strong a neighborhood voice can be. I also really appreciate how Timothy has us looking at the larger picture around safety and this question of how many deaths are acceptable in a significantly safer system. That's a really hard question for policymakers to answer. I do not envy them because there's a lot of sensational news coverage out there related to things like uh, Tesla autopilot crashes and EV battery fires. And I can see how as we get more autonomous vehicles on the road and there are certain collisions and incidents, there might be this outsized media attention that can skew our perceptions and make something feel more frequent or riskier than it actually is. On a side note, 
Tesla has won some recent autopilot lawsuits where people were blaming the technology and saying it was defective, but actually the software proved that it was human error. Um, so just one more reason why being an early mover in a sector um, can have its downsides, especially, you know, when you're trailblazing case law. I expect that there's going to be a couple more years of this case law being developed and regulators are going to pull a lot of knobs and levers to tweak how autonomous vehicle technology can operate and interface with us Earthlings. In today's Restoring Faith in Humanity segment, we're going to Venezuela, where Lake Maracaibo is suffering this massive oil spill. And to combat this environmental disaster, Celine Istvach, a 28-year-old environmentalist, founded Proyecto Sereña. It's an initiative to collect donated hair from thousands of volunteers, including dogs, and weave that hair into nets and blooms that can contain and absorb oil slicks. This method was actually pioneered by environmentalists back in 1989. It's proven very effective, and anybody who has curly, coarse hair knows how porous it can be. So two pounds of hair is capable of soaking up up to 11 to 17 pounds of oil. That's crazy. And then Celine is also working on um, safely disposing of that oil so she can reuse the blooms. Pretty cool. Um, I would say that we also want to give a shout out to Alabama-based hairdresser Philip McElroy, who originally developed this uh, practice of using human hair to absorb oil. It's just a great example of how powerful natural fibers can be and of what change can be made by putting two and two together on this beautiful blue-green space flower that we call home. Hey, listeners. This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.